Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on all things related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be discussing the consequences faced by law enforcement for engaging in gang-related activities in their secret societies. Two men have been charged with the murder of Jason Mizell, AKA Jam Master J from Run DMC, and the consequences faced by the Cook County Prosecutor's Office over their handling of the Jesse Smollett case. In segment two, as promised, we'll be unpacking false confessions. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. And make sure you follow us on our social media channels, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense and at T-L-O-B-J on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Look to T-L-O-B-J.com and all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week, in a follow-up to our prior discussion about gangs in the LA County Sheriff's Department, the LA County Sheriff has vowed to discipline in officers involved in those activities. Yeah, I did, and that is amazing how they are making some progress all from the research that the LA Times did um, just a few weeks ago. So this investigation targets a group of uh, officers that call themselves the Banditos, who assaulted a group of Latino officers back in 2018. The Latino officers described suffering a beating by their fellow officers at an off-duty department policy in September of 2018 uh, a few months after lodging formal complaints about intimidation and harassment by the banditos during the workday. Um, in February of 2020, the district attorney had declined to prosecute uh, these suspected gang members involved in the brawl, noting that at least 21 and closer to maybe 100 of the officers were present and witnessed the event, refused to cooperate with the investigation. It's amazing that they had so many officers that were you know, looking at the situation and, and did not do anything, and they haven't come forward and said anything when um, investigated. So if those, if those officers weren't disciplined then, uh, at the time that this happened, is it fair for them to be disciplined now? So it depends on the administrative rules that govern employment at the sheriff's department there in LA County. Now these, right, these officers will absolutely have rights to notice uh, a hearing and an opportunity to provide a statement or a defense, if you will. Uh, the LA Times expose renewed interest in this case and created additional political pressure to respond to the demands um, and this is a general demand for police accountability that has sprung up in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, which was revived earlier this year. This highlights the danger of the gang-like fraternities that are allowed to thrive in law enforcement and the hostile work environment that this sort of behavior can create for individuals that want to do the right thing. You'll recall, Erica, time and time again, you know, law enforcement says, well, it's just a couple of bad apples that are causing all the problems. But the people that are looking for police accountability and police reform say, well, if there are bad apples, call them out on it. Be the bigger person and do the right thing. Uphold the law as you have sworn to do. 
But situations like this demonstrate that if you do come forward, you will be harassed and ultimately assaulted by your fellow officers. So, uh, you know, is it fair to uh, discipline them at this point? I think it absolutely is. So what would it look like um, when they discipline a police officer? The police officers can suffer a variety of penalties from demotion to reduction in pay. Oftentimes departments choose to just transfer officers within or outside of the department to other agencies. Um, they can lose benefits such as overtime, vacation, um, and they can be required to go through additional training um, they can receive private or public reprimands, and ultimately they can be terminated from employment. We discussed in a prior show, Erica, that law enforcement has some of the strongest unions left in American society today. And it is because of their collective bargaining efforts that they have secured rights from counties, states, and local governments that employ them, um, including these extensive rights to progressive discipline, and due process in the disciplinary process. Now, every law enforcement officer has a file that includes their disciplinary history, their awards and accommodations, and their reprimands, their training certificates and their administrative records. These records are available to the public through a public records request or a sunshine law request. And though those records are often um, scrubbed or edited, uh, they are not supposed to be, and those are not supposed to be redacted without written permission and a valid legal justification. Skilled defense attorneys make sure to check the police officer's administrative file for any officer involved in a case. You know, in, in one particular case, Erica, that we were involved in, we requested the disciplinary history of two investigating officers and we discovered that during the time that they claimed to have been engaging in the investigation of our client, what they were actually doing was engaging in an extramarital affair. And so we were able to use that information to leverage for our client and get a dismissal of the charges against him. Wow, that is, that is amazing. And it's great to hear how you're able to you know, use this in your own practice. Can I ask you, if the administration is disciplining the police officers, does that take away the need for an FBI investigation? Absolutely not. So just as any individual citizen can be prosecuted both by their state and the federal government for their behavior, so can these officers. And in fact, I would argue, Erica, that the FBI has an obligation to address this bad behavior. Just because the state chose not to criminally prosecute them does not preclude the federal government from criminally prosecuting them. Remember, Erica, what's being investigated at this point is not just the gang affiliation or what they would call a, a fraternal friendly group. What is being investigated now is an assault, a coordinated physical attack on their fellow officers. And that's criminal behavior if it's proven to be true. Now, the possibility of both a state and federal case does not prevent administrative action uh, falling down on these officers' heads as well. So you can have state prosecution 
federal prosecution and administrative action within the department. And all three of those disciplinary proceedings can go forward at the same time. This is an example of how one action can have a variety of legal repercussions in separate jurisdictions and with separate and distinct penalties. This is why it's crucial to secure an attorney very early after making a mistake and an attorney that has the skills necessary to work towards a global resolution of these complex situations. That's incredible that you can get in trouble and then you have so many different ways that you could get in trouble. So not only are you going to get in trouble at work, which they're getting in trouble at work, they're, they're also going to be investigated by several other parties. I, I mean, do you see this a lot? Erica, we don't see law enforcement being held accountable for their illegal actions ever. So this is a great step forward. This is a demonstration of the effect of the protests that have been going on for months now. Wow. I mean, change is here. And it's very obvious from, from what's been happening. And the stories that just keep coming out, I feel like every time you, you find out something terrible, about someone, Tiger Woods, for example, having one affair. I just remember sitting with my dad at a bar when that came out. And I was, I'm like, you know what? I bet there's more. And there were, there were so many more. So I expect that the situation with the police officers, it's, it's just going to keep getting worse. Now one person tells and everyone's going to spill. And I think we're going to have more and more stories to talk about in the future. Well, I think you're absolutely right that as people become more confident, as law enforcement officers become more confident in doing the right thing and knowing that they'll be protected for doing the right thing, we're going to see more and more accountability for law enforcement officers and the kind of accountability that is decades overdue. Speaking of people in law enforcement being held accountable, a special prosecutor has announced findings of his investigation into the Cook County State Attorney's Office and its handling of the Jesse Smollett case in 2019. Now, you may recall back in 2019, actor Jesse Smollett was the complaining witness in an alleged racially motivated assault. Now, the, the investigation purported revealed that Mr. Smollett had paid his attackers to commit this assault against him, and the case was dismissed for a deferred prosecution in 2019. Now, the state attorney at that time had recused himself, and ultimately, Mr. Smollett was indicted and presently faces felony criminal charges as of February of 2020. That was such a sensational case when it came out and not in a good way. It was very surprising. Still don't know why he would do that, but it's nice to see that they are going to investigate the outcome so that people that do stupid things like that just because they're rich don't get away with it. Absolutely. And the investigation in this case examined whether the state attorney had abused its discretion or violated state law in prosecuting the case at all. Now, that means that the elected state attorney and any other lawyer or administrator under her control as the leader of that office. So this investigation is not related to Mr. Smollett's actions, but rather the prosecutor's actions in charging and later dismissing the case on a bond forfeiture of $10,000. So what was the outcome of the investigation? Prosecutor found that the state attorney had abused its discretion in dismissing the case, as well as in not recusing the entirety of the office when Mr. Smollett 
uh, was found to have been not the alleged victim, but actually the alleged perpetrator of the crime. Specifically, the elected state attorney, Kim Cook, was found to have continued to communicate with the Smollett family and declined to recuse herself on that basis. There's outrage by law enforcement after the dismissal triggered this investigation, resulting in a referral to the Illinois Disciplinary Committee and tarnishing the reputation of a progressive prosecutor on the eve of her reelection. You can take that timing for what you will, uh, because she was also the first black woman and second black person to hold prosecuting power in the second largest prosecutor's office in the United States. I hear this and I'm just so disappointed and I get it. I can see where, you know, maybe she felt a kinship and she's made it so far and it's all ruined now. And I think just power is too tempting for some people. I think you've got that right. Absolutely, Erica. This is why we need to have strict rules about accountability for those who are in power. I agree. So what does a referral to disciplinary committee mean? Lawyers are a wholly self-regulated profession, meaning that only lawyers can take the ability to practice law away from other lawyers. It doesn't matter if you are the defense, the prosecutor, or the judge. You can be called into disciplinary proceedings by the state's governing body. Lawyers abide by the rules of professional ethics and professional conduct. And prosecutors have special ethical rules that they must abide, different from all other types of lawyer, special rules that apply only to them. Now, any lawyer can face disciplinary process from the committee. An action begins with a complaint, and then there's notice, investigation, an opportunity to respond with counsel, and later, if necessary, a trial and an appellate process. Discipline can range from a private or a public reprimand or an order to participate in a lawyer's assistance program for mental health or addiction issues, up to suspension from the practice of law or complete disbarment, loss of the ability to practice law ever again. Yeah, I actually know an attorney that that happened to, and I think it had something to do with a real estate transaction, putting the funds in the wrong pot. And uh, yeah, I think he's a bartender now. It's <laughs> that, that can be the harshest uh, punishment. Lawyers call it the death penalty. It is the death penalty for lawyers, for sure. Did you also see this week that the assistant U.S. attorney in New York has announced charges against two men accused of the murder of Jason Mizell, better known as Jam Master Jay, from the rap group Run DMC. He was shot in a studio uh, in 2002, and the charges have just been issued this week. That's amazing. 18 years. I mean, what about a statute of limitations? So there's no statute of limitations on murder. And as to why this investigation took so long, um, especially since the accused identities were known to police a month after the shooting, uh, when the New York Post reported the involvement of one of the accused, uh, Ronald Washington. Now, in November of 2018, Netflix released a documentary exploring the case as part of its remastered series. And it posed the question that whether law enforcement officers were intentionally dragging their feet on arresting the suspect. Uh, the family of Jam Master Jay hired a private detective because of their unhappiness with the progress made by the New York Police Department. This is not an uncommon 
um, and, and sadly frequent uh, side of the case. Now, whether it's a complaining witness or the accused, uh, either because one or both may seek outside investigators to ensure a thorough and fair investigation in a case. Now, the police will likely highlight the same issue that purportedly stymied the investigation into the deaths of Christopher Wallace, AKA the notorious B.I.G., and Tupac Shakur. What they cite is a general unwillingness to cooperate with law enforcement investigations by those connected to the events and or who hold important contextual information about the case. Everybody knows the phrase snitches get stitches and that cooperation with what is perceived to be a racist authoritarian police department is tantamount to a crime in its own in certain communities. The police frequently in these cases claim that the victims are outlaws, they're drug dealers, um, or engaged in some other illicit behavior, which in the police's mind makes it okay for other people to commit crimes against them. Is it important that these are federal charges as opposed to state charges? Absolutely. The indictment in this case includes not only a charge of murder and conspiracy to murder, but it also includes charges of drug trafficking and conspiracy charges related to drug trafficking, specifically cocaine. Now, in some state jurisdictions, charges can be filed in the form of a complaint within days of an event occurring, and the investigation continues while the case proceeds through the grand jury and indictment process. Federal cases tend to be filed upon the conclusion of an FBI or task force investigation that may span decades of surveillance and investigation. There's no statute of limitations on murder, remember, in any jurisdiction in the United States. Well, I can imagine that there's due process issues with a case that is 18 years old. I mean, we have different technology now, obviously. So, I mean, that along with samples fading and, and getting lost in the shuffle, and we've talked a lot about that sort of thing in the past on this show. Um, what do you see happening with this due process? Due process claims are going to be a major issue during the litigation of this case. As you said, Erica, we have explored before on this show how a delay in indictment can result in dismissal of a case, even at the federal level and certainly at the state level, based on a violation of due process. There's also practical issues that you also discussed about. Memories fade, businesses close, surveillance footage is lost, and records are destroyed. Information that was known at the time the offenses allegedly occurred fades away into history. The defense attorney's role in this case is going to be to make a record of everything that existed then but does not exist now. And that could mean issuing subpoenas that are returned unanswered and requesting public records surrounding the investigation that agencies return and say have been destroyed. There is a trove of detailed reporting that can be relied on in this case to help locate witnesses and evidence. And the defense attorney in this case is going to have his or her hands full in drumming up that information that was available then, but is not available now. Crime is not exciting. People getting killed is not exciting. But I have to say that in all of these different scenarios that we talk about, they, they're exciting. I, I can't wait to see what happens with this situation as time goes on because the outcomes are going to be incredibly 
interesting and I think groundbreaking for all of the cases that come in the future. I agree a hundred percent. And when issues like this, issues that are kind of the minutia of the law in criminal defense uh, come into the light as it relates to a case that garners national attention. It can only improve the public's knowledge and understanding of the criminal process. Frequently, when I'm representing clients, I find people saying, well, that's not how I thought about it. Um, you know, or how can they do this? Or how can this happen to me? And when cases like this come to the public's attention, I think it's important for the media to cover some of the legal minutia. Now we can't get down to the level of case law and, and the details, but you know, summaries like what we're doing today are important because it educates the public about what the process is. And that sort of accountability through transparency is critical to our democracy. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I'm so glad that we do talk about these. It's important for the public to know what's going on and to be educated on what's happening in the judicial process. Well, one agency that's doing a great job of educating the public about the judicial process is Netflix. And in 2019, Ava DuVernay released a series, When They See Us, which explored the tragic case of the Central Park Five, now better known as the Exonerated Five, that exposed how false confessions were extracted from five teenagers, and that those confessions were the product of coercive and guilt-presumptive interrogation tactics, also known as the Reed Technique. Currently, 28% of the nation's 376 wrongful convictions that have been overturned through DNA evidence involved a false confession or admission. Now, we've previously explored the coercive tactics used by police during interrogations and the difference between confessions and admissions. So today let's unpack why an innocent person might confess to a crime that they didn't commit. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about this because we've talked about this in the past about how when you're talking to a law enforcement person, whether you're guilty of something or not, you're already a little bit nervous and you're going to absolutely listen to what they say because they are a, a figure of authority and we've all been trained to get in line and, and do what we're told from a very early age. So those beliefs do not go away and I think are even magnified in certain situations when you're, when you're dealing with a law enforcement officer. So I mean, those are some of the reasons that I think somebody may be coerced into admitting guilt to a crime that they did not commit. However, I'd love to hear what your take is on it. Why do people admit to crimes they don't commit? The research shows that the phenomenon has two key factors, dispositional factors and situational factors. Dispositional factors refer to pre-existing elements such as age, personality traits, and mental limitations that affect how vulnerable an individual will be to suggestive and coercive interrogation techniques. People with mental limitations who have low IQ, um, autism spectrum disorder and things of that nature are disproportionately represented in the number of actual false confessions that have been documented. Youth is also a substantial risk factor 
for false confessions. Research shows that child witnesses are more compliant and suggestible than adult witnesses and are more likely to internalize and actually start to believe fictitious events and generate memories of fictitious events when they're exposed to leading questions, peer pressure, repetition, and other socially influenced tactics. Finally, mentally capable adults are not immune to these sorts of coercive tactics. Anybody can be predisposed to be compliant with adult and authority figures, as you said. Now, situational factors refer to elements of a person's immediate situation that increase the likelihood that a person might falsely confess. Suspects who feel intimidated or physically threatened by police are susceptible to false confessions and are in fear of harsh legal consequences should they choose not to confess to a crime that they didn't commit. They're often threatened by police with severely and excessively harsh outcomes should they choose not to confess. And fearing those excessively harsh outcomes, they choose to say that they did something rather than stand by the truth. Situational factors that have also been shown to produce false confessions include compromised reasoning abilities due to stress, exhaustion, hunger, substance use. The physical setting of the interrogation can be particularly influential, such as isolation or confinement to an unfamiliar setting. And despite efforts at reforms, police officers continue to use intimidation, deprivation, prolonged interrogation, and physical abuse as a means justify the ends mentality continues to control and dictate the behaviors of police and consistently lead to errors in law enforcement, wrongfully accused individuals, and as we're talking about today, false confessions. There are even situations of false confessions in high profile cases that have received media attention um, and or triggered by mental illness. Frequently when you have uh, a case that receives broad media attention and press has put out a call for leads or tips at the request of law enforcement, you will have a flood of individuals come forth confessing to the crime that could have never possibly committed the crime. I mean, I would assume that false confessions are illegal. Would this be used against the accused at trial if they were found to give a false confession? Yes. Prosecutors will absolutely attempt to use a false confession to support a wrongful conviction. A defense attorney must demand and subpoena all records related to the accused interrogation, including the audio and video recording if it's available. Under Ohio law, uh, the vast majority of interrogations are required by statute to be video recorded. A motion to suppress statements is almost always appropriate in cases where there is a confession or an admission. And it's a great vehicle to challenge not only the legal admissibility of a confession, but also an avenue to challenge the veracity, the truthfulness, and the accuracy of a confession especially where there has been a later recantation or a retraction of the confession. Because suppression is a judicially created tool that will prevent the admission of unreliable evidence. Now, judges stand as gatekeepers and they can prevent prosecutors from admitting this evidence. The problem is, is that they frequently refuse to use that power on behalf of the criminally accused. Now we've previously explored that confession is suppressed will weigh on the totality of the circumstances in the case. 
including the age, the experience with the system, education, time, and location of the interrogation. The defense attorney must conduct a thorough investigation into the mental, emotional, and social history of the accused, as well as how the totality of the circumstances argument is made to the court. Can these confessions be admitted at trial? Absolutely. Can they be challenged and excluded with the skills of a quality defense attorney? Yes. So, I mean, that's a great point that you bring up. When you have a great lawyer that is crossing all of the T's and dotting all of the I's, you are less likely to, first of all, have a false confession, I would think, if you have someone early enough in the process, but secondly, have it used against you later if you are coerced into you know, falsely confessing to a crime you did not commit. And so, I mean, this is where I would say if anyone does you know, know someone themselves or may have some issues in this area um, or any criminal area, just pick up the phone and give Brian Jones and his office a call because you know they do their own research, they keep up on all of the laws and they make sure that the strategy is there so that you don't have to have your entire life ruined, which is essentially what happens if you if you know if you are charged with a crime and end up going to jail and you know, none of it was really, you know, especially if none of it was really your fault. Definitely. So maybe, Brian, you could tell us what are some of the safeguards that exist in Ohio to protect against false confessions? As of today, 27 states and the District of Columbia require recording of certain interrogations. Likewise, the United States Department of Justice issued a policy in 2014 requiring law enforcement officers to record interrogations of any individual suspected of a crime. In Ohio, in 2010, a law was passed that authorizes but does not require the recording of custodial interrogations for people suspected of homicide and sexual assault. It's a carrot rather than a stick, as the law explicitly states that the failure to record will not be used as a penalty against law enforcement. It is, however, a factor that the court can consider when deciding whether to allow or exclude the admission of a confession in a trial. A survey by the Ohio Innocence Project found that 52% of Ohio's 253 law enforcement agencies had a recording policy, but only 25 of those 253 agencies required recording. 70% of agencies reported that officers received interrogation training, and 21%, most in rural jurisdictions, reported that their officers received no training in interrogation. This creates an absolute inequality under the law, Erica. Depending on which jurisdiction you're in, whether you're in the country or in the city, and what resources your police department has, determines whether your rights are protected or violated during an interrogation. It's interesting that in 2016, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled the law unconstitutional as it applied to juveniles and noted that the law violates due process rights because a juvenile's assertion that they understand their rights cannot be considered to be a statement presumed to be voluntary simply because it's electronically recorded. While this decision applied juvenile law and procedure to the statute, legal scholars have extrapolated this rationale and skilled defense attorneys will be using this rationale to attack the law and attack interrogations for years to come. Most recently in 2020, the Ohio Innocence Project 
has redoubled its advocacy efforts and new legislation is pending in the Ohio House, in Ohio House Bill 277. The bill would create a statewide requirement that law enforcement electronically record all custodial interrogations for homicide and sexual assault cases. And it clarifies issues with the prior law by mandating reporting of any suspect rather than making it optional. The failure to record will result in a cautionary jury instruction. We still haven't gotten to the place where these illegal interrogations are excluded from court, but the, the accused will at least get a jury instruction read by the judge to the jury that may be considered as a totality of circumstances factor when the judge or the jury is weighing the appropriateness of the, the veracity of a confession. And most importantly, the bill removes the existing language that states that electronically recorded statements are presumed to be voluntary. The removal of this language ensures that the voluntariness of a statement made during a recorded interrogation can still be probed contextually. Remember, we were talking about things like mental ability, the influences and pressures that the officer put on the individual, things of that nature. When these proposed fixes go through, unfortunately, the law still lacks the protection necessary for those who are charged with less serious crimes um, other than rape or homicide, which can have devastating consequences for an individual's life as those more serious offenses can. It's good to hear that they're on the right track with having recording in place, but it would be nice if it was an absolute. They had to do it. You know, so that more of these um, interrogations are true interrogations, not something where the police are desperate to pin it on somebody and they're, they're desperate to figure out what happened. So they, they get people to say things that aren't true. But I'd love to see that. Are there, are there any other protections against false confessions that you didn't mention before? The most important protection against false confessions is to not speak to police without an attorney present in the first place. The second is making sure that you're educated about your rights by consulting and retaining a qualified criminal defense attorney. The third is to make sure that your attorney explores the use of a psychological expert if the confession is found to be admissible and therefore going to be admitted to the jury at trial. A properly trained psychological expert can explain to the jury all of the things that we've talked about today, why false confessions occur, and why this particular confession is unreliable. We'll be talking about that next week. Erica, thank you for joining me, and everybody else, thank you as well for listening to our show today. To become more informed about police and government accountability, false confessions, and all of your constitutional and civil rights, check out tlobj.com or find us on facebook.com, Central Ohio Criminal Defense, and at tlobj on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. You can also find our information using the hashtags no walk, no talk, and no blow. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as our discussion and deep dive into using psychological experts to defend criminal cases. Erica, my grandfather always told me, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I would want mine defended. <laughs>